Hi, this is Dr. Jonathan Vorce's daughter, Nikki, from Lakewood Family Church. This is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. Hope this inspires you, helps you, and uplifts you. We're here to win the lost, to train disciples, and to make Jesus famous. Hope you enjoy the message today. And so we're going to begin talking today over the next couple of weeks about the Old Testament priest is the New Testament believer. Now before we really get going with this, I do want to mention to you that uh, in the course of this study, beginning next week, we're going to talk about some of the different giftings in the church and we're going to discover why that there are some people that have a hard time getting along with other people in the church. And we're going to talk about the different kinds of people that are in the priesthood. We're going to talk about the different kinds of people who are believers today. And and why would we talk about that? Because if I can understand you better, and you can understand me better, and we can all understand each other better, then maybe we'll give each other a little bit more allowance to be who God created us to be. And so I think that it will just help us. Because see, here's what happens. A lot of times, and I shared this in the first service, so I'll just share it as an example. A lot of times you'll have people that'll come in and here's what they'll say. They'll say something like this. They'll say, well, I just think that the church today should be just feeding all of the hungry people that they can feed. In fact, we need to go out here, we need to find them. We need to have a food pantry, we need to have a food bank, and we need to just feed everybody that we can feed. And if you don't do that, then they want to leave and go somewhere else where they're actually doing that because to them that's what the church is. But what they don't understand is... That's the mercy gift. But you can't operate a mercy gift if you don't have people in your congregation that have the giving gift. And they're givers. Well, uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people, a lot of times the givers have a different view of the ministry than those that have the mercy gift. The mercy gift says, you're a giver, just give and don't even worry about what we do with it. The giver says, I'm going to give... I'm going to inspect. I want to make sure that what is, you know, that it's going for what. And most of the time people that have a giving gift don't have too much of a problem if you just show them, okay, this much went here and this much went there. That's why we have the State of the Church Address every year, usually in about January or February. is because we just kind of break it down and show you guys just a little bit. This is what goes here and this is what goes there and da-da-da-da-da. Now if we get too deep into it, then that creates church splits. Live there, done that, not going to allow that to happen on my watch. All right? But we will be accountable. Well, when you understand that giving people are in the priesthood, the New Testament priesthood, and mercy people are in the New Testament priesthood, when you understand that both of those, and there's uh, five other giftings that we're going to talk about, but when you understand that they're in the priesthood together, then you understand that God put us all under the same roof. That means He must want us to live together. So in order to live together, we need to start understanding each other so we can start not just tolerating one another, but celebrating one another. God didn't call us to compete with our ideas of how ministry ought to be. God called us to complete one another so so we can all be the body of Christ. The Bible puts it like this. The Bible said that we are all members in particular... And the Bible says that we are joints in the body of Christ and we feed one another, we take care of one another, and we help one another. The Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood was made out of the Levitical priesthood. 
there were three different clans of Levites. This is something that a lot of people don't know. They just think that thought that, well, the Old Testament priesthood, they were Levites and the high priest was a Levite and he was a descendant of Aaron. Well, that's true. Aaron was the first priest and they were the high and the high priests were descendants of Aaron. But Aaron's clan were the ones that were the high priests that actually entered in beyond the veil that did those types of things. And that was the clan of the Kohathites. But there were other clans as well besides the Kohathites. And so there were three different clans of Levites uh, named after the three different sons of Levi, Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. And they all did holy things and they all did different jobs. But there, are, there were some of them that their job was to make sure that the brazen laver was filled with water. So when the priests went to wash their hands, they had clean water to wash their hands. There were others that had to go around the outer court. You have people coming into the outer court, it's going to get dirty. They swept the floors in the outer court. They kept everything clean in the outer court. Some of them uh, received the shoe bread that was baked by the ladies and they would take this shoe bread and they would go in there and they would place the shoe bread on the table of shoe bread in the holy place. Some of the priests trimmed the wicks on the lamps in, uh, in, in the holy place called the menorah or the candlestick, the golden candlestick, and they trimmed those lamps and kept that burning. There had to be someone that replaced the incense or put more incense on the altar of incense. Are you seeing this? What about when the children of Israel would up and leave? What about that? It was the priest who gathered the temple together and literally carried it to the next place and set it back up the way that it was supposed to be set up. So the point that I'm trying to make is, even in the New Testament priesthood, there are different tasks that must be done. The Old Testament priests are the New Testament believer. They were patterns of that which is to come. You and I are New Testament believers. It was just as significant to have a clan that could set the tabernacle and the temple up like it needed to be set up, the tent of meetings, the five poles that represented the, um, that represented the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher that goes into the holy place, the four different beams that held up the uh, veil of the temple uh, that, that was torn eventually in twain from top to bottom. All of that had to be set up. And it was just as important for all of that to be set up correctly, for the wrinkles to be pressed out, for everything to be washed, for everything to be in place, as it was for the high priest to walk in there and stand before the veil at the altar of incense for the last stop before he entered in one time into the holy place. It, it just The menial tasks were just as important as the high priest task. In today's World, we can say it like this. All of us who are believers, every single one of us who are believers, have a significant job to do in the body of Christ. The people that sweep the floors of the sanctuary are just as important as the person who stands behind the sacred desk and delivers the Word of God. In God's eyes, they're just as important. In God's eyes, their task is just as important. And just like you expect the man of God in this particular place, some places women of God, but just like you expect the man of God to come here and stand behind the pulpit and minister the Word of God to you faithfully 
It is just as important as those who say, I'll do this or I'll do that to be faithful. You are a New Testament priest working around the house of the Lord, working around the temple, and God not only requires, but He celebrates your faithfulness. Sweeping the floor is worship. Emptying the trash is worship. Putting the coffee in the coffee pots is worship. Standing here to sing on the stage, that's worship. Well, that's easy to understand, isn't it? Did you know that there was a part, a clan of the priesthood that all they did was worship? It was their job to keep the worship going in the outer court. It was their job to sound the trumpets. It was their job to talk to people, to counsel people, to minister to people, to answer questions. In fact, there was an umen and a thurman on on the breastplate of the high priest. And when they needed a yes or no answer from the Lord, they would get in the presence of the Lord and then they would just reach and grab and whichever, whichever one they grabbed, one was no and one was yes. So it was the job of the priesthood to direct the spiritual lives of the people of of Israel. The New Testament priesthood were all believers. We're all part of the New Testament priesthood. The Bible said that I'll make you a kingdom of kings and priests. And so we're all part of the New Testament priesthood. We're the ones who have the answers for the lost of the world. We're the ones who should worship the Lord and encourage one another and strengthen one another and then take this outside of the tent walls, outside of the church walls, outside of the tent walls to the other different clans of Israel, to the other different people in our community. We have a responsibility We're in the holy place right now. We're in the holiest of holies right now. Worship takes us there spiritually. We're the the temple of God. We're the place where God dwells. God doesn't dwell in temples that are made with hands. All of this is now set up inside of the believer. So the believer carries with them everywhere that they go worship to God Almighty. The New Testament believer carries the power with them that God has given them to minister the gospel message to people who can grasp that and receive it and experience the blood of Jesus Christ applied to their heart and applied to their life. So no matter how small the position was among God's people, no matter how small it was, it still was significant In God's eyes. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, You matter to God. Tell them that. Tell them, You matter to God. Now, only the high priest could offer sacrifices. So there were separations among them. Even though they were priesthood, only the high priest could offer sacrifices. Only certain ones could tear down and and take the temple different places. Only certain ones could carry the Ark of the Covenant. Only certain ones could worship. We find this in the New Testament structure of the church. We find different giftings. We find ministry gifts in the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher. We find the pattern of that at the entering in to the holy place. If God has called you to work around the temple and to be a part of a different type of Levitical plan than the fivefold priesthood, then don't say, well, I really wish I was that. Be who God made you to be. Not everybody is called to be a pastor. Not everyone's called to be an apostle. Not everyone's called to be an evangelist, a prophet, or a teacher. Some 
are called to operate in ministry gifts. Some are called to operate in in, uh, motivational gifts. Some are servers. Some are mercy people. Some are helpers. Some are givers. Some are builders. This is something that set me free uh, early on in ministry because we've been pastoring for many, many, many years and we see people come and we see people go and some people, if they don't understand what's going on, they get upset and they see that as something other than success. They see it as failure. But when you look at the kingdom of God overall, you understand what's going on. And here's what I found out because we've built four churches and we've helped nearly a hundred others get built over the last 30 years or so. And so here's what I found out. When you're in an area and God is using you to raise up a church and build a church, God's going to send the builders to you. And you celebrate them and they help you and work. But most of the time, the people who help you build the church are not the people who will be there for the duration because they were designed by God to help get ministries going. And when the time comes... Then they come to you and they say, and you can tell because what happens is the church gets up and it gets clicking along and it gets going and different people are coming and then you have your longer term people that come in. You know the people who come in and they say, you know what, this is my church. This is where I'm going to raise my family. This is where my grandkids will be. You're going to, if you live long enough, pastor, you're going to be the one that buries me. Those are the type of people that come in. They're not the type of people that are going to help you sand the walls, that are going to help you uh, uh, do all of the landscaping on that. They generally aren't the type of people that are going to do that. They're the type of people that are more interested in the journey. So I call these the journey people. These are people that are there for the journey. When the Lord revealed that to me, He revealed to me that you have scaffolding people and you have journey people. And so when the scaffolding people's business is done and they come to you and they say, you know what, Pastor, I just feel like the Lord is leading me to go somewhere else. At first that used to bite because, you know, when you're working with people to paint walls, when you're working to renovate, when you're working and doing all of these types types of things, you develop relationships with these people. You fall in love with them. They fall in love with you. But you can sense them getting more distant, farther and farther and farther away. You can sense them getting more distant. And eventually they come to you and say, the Lord is leading me to go somewhere else. Inside you're like, no, 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 no. And if you don't watch it and you're not mature enough, because I've been there, you'll see it as a betrayal. When it's not a betrayal at all, their work is done. And if you will look, you will see that the place that they went is another little church of 10 people or 15 people. And what did they do when they went there? They jumped in. They got excited. They started acting like they were when they first came to be with you. They st- they're in the business of helping that, that pastor and, and, and those leaders build that church and build it and build it and build it and build it. And then what will happen is three to five years down the road, they'll come along and they'll tell that pastor. They'll say, you know what? I, I feel like the Lord's leading me somewhere. And then you go look and see where they go. And some people say, well, they're hopping from place to place. No, they're living out their calling. They're fulfilling their function. Now, if they come six months to a year and they bounce from one place to the ne- next and they leave because they're mad, they're just spiritual juveniles. And they're throwing a temper tantrum because things didn't go their way. And that's totally different than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people living out their calling. 
The point that I'm trying to make is in the New Testament priesthood, you have people who are called to do specific things. And we need to give each other the permission to succeed and listen, the permission to fail in their calling. We need to allow them to be the priest that God has called them to be. So the duties of the priest were exacting. They were time consuming. It was busy stuff. They burned incense on the golden incense altar. They cleaned and trimmed the whips in the lampstand. They placed shewbread on the table of shewbread every Sabbath. They kept the fire burning constantly on the brazen altar. They offered sacrifices in the morning and the evening and One of the things that they did that I feel is very significant, but it's because of who I am, but as a pastor and a leader, but they would bless the people every day. That's what they would do. And so the question I would ask you is this. As part of the New Testament priesthood, when you get up in the morning and you're praying, you're not done praying until you ask God, who can I bless today? Lord, help me bless someone today. And then obviously uh, they were uh, part of sprinkling the blood up on the altar. The Hebrew meaning for the word shewbread, and one of the things they would do is place that upon the shewbread, and I didn't get as deep into this as I wanted to, so I skipped over some of the other things in this, in this uh, part of the message, but I want to get a little deeper into this with you. The Hebrew meaning of the word shewbread is face bread. It's the bread of presence, indicating that it was set and eaten before the face or in the presence of God. That's in Leviticus chapter 24. Jesus, according to John 12 and Matthew 16, is the living bread. The living bread who was ground finely in the mill of suffering and heated in the furnace of affliction and death. But now He is available for us to consume. How do we consume Him? We consume Him through our praise and through our worship. When we look at communion... When we look at the bread, when we look at the blood, when we look at communion, we find that there is praise involved. The word praise comes from the Hebrew word halal, which means to thank, to rejoice, or to boast about someone. And it is the root word of the word hallelujah. And the word hallelujah is the only word that is spoken in every language the same way. Doesn't matter what language. When you get to hallelujah, it's all hallelujah. Why? Because it's the highest form of praise. Even the agnostic and the atheist, when they say hallelujah, they are worshiping and praising God and don't even know it. They don't even know it. If something happens and they say, well, hallelujah. Well, what that means is glory be to God, praise, thanks, rejoice, and we boast about you, God. That's what it means. That's what it means. And so uh, the word hallelujah is formed out of the word halal, and it usually speaks or sings of the glory, the virtue, the honor of Almighty God, our covenant Keeping God. So as a royal priesthood, as a royal priesthood, we are taken up with Him into praise and worship. We're caught up into praise and worship and everything else seems to be utterly insignificant. Everything else gets put into a different perspective when we praise God and when we worship God. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 says this, 
You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That you should show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That word praises is the word halal. That you should show forth and thank and rejoice and boast of the glory, the virtue, the honor, and the praise of our covenant-keeping God. That's what we are. We're the chosen generation, the royal priesthood, the New Testament priesthood, which is the fulfillment of the pattern of things to come that we see in the Old Testament priesthood. Hallelujah. We were created to worship. We were created to praise. And then the Bible said He's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Verse 10 says, Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. When were we not a people? That we were not a people because we become uh, Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We've been engrafted into the vine. We were not a people until the day that God cut covenant with Israel that day and married her after dating her for 430 years. Do you think that your betrothal is long? which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which hath not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. The Old Testament sacrifice of the Lamb was harsh. The sacrifice of Jesus was harsh, but it was final. It was final. So as the royal priesthood, we praise Him because not only was He the Lamb slain, but we praise Him because He is risen. He is risen indeed. He's overcome death and He's overcome hell and He's overcome the grave. And so uh, worship and praise has to do with fellowship. True fellowship is the basis of fellowship with God. The Bible says, uh, well, let, let, let me just say it like this. The Hebrew word for fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia. When the Bible talks that we talks about that we are partakers of the fellowship of His sufferings. That word koinonia means partnership. And so when I'm in a partnership with God concerning the fellowship of His sufferings, I don't have to suffer because He did that part of the partnership for me. There are two sides of partnerships. When I'm in a partnership with God, He suffers so that I can, so I don't have to suffer. He became poor so that I might become rich. He gave His life so that I could live eternally. We talked about it last week as the great exchange. You remember that? The great exchange. And so the priesthood, the New Testament priesthood, has the responsibility to clarify this blessing to lost people everywhere. People in America get upset when you tell them Jesus was rich and they say, I can't believe that you said that he was rich. Well, the Bible said that he became, he became poor. Well, you don't become poor from poor. Right? You don't become poor from poor. He became poor so that we might become rich. They say, well, yeah, yeah, he condescended and came to this earth and 
uh, all of that. I said, yes, he did. And probably with what he was seeing here on the earth, it looked like poverty compared to what he came from. But he was dealing with modern vernacular in that day. And so when he, the Bible says that he became poor so that we might become rich, we have to look at it and see the only place that he became poor was the last place that the last thing he owned was stripped off of his body, and that was the cross. Jesus became poor. Jesus became as poor as he could ever become when he cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his face from him. Darkness covered the land. There was lightning and thunder. And the Bible said that the rocks rent. If you study biology, you will find out that the blood of a child comes from the Father. The reason that the rocks at the, at the foot of the cross rent, rent was because it was the blood of the Creator that was bathing those rocks. And when Jesus cried, it is finished, the, even the earth responded to what happened that day. Then Jesus went down into the earth, and we'll talk about it here in just a few moments, but he went down into the belly of the earth and he, con and he conquered the last thing that needed to be conquered, and that was death. There was nothing else more powerful. Jesus had already conquered everything else, but when he conquered death, and see, the enemy thought, he thought, well, I had him. I killed him, it's over. The enemy thought he had him, but then Jesus comes along and he conquers death. How do they know that he conquers death? Because the Bible said that even before Jesus was resurrected, that the graves of the saints popped open and they walked through the streets of Jerusalem. Between the time that Jesus cried, it is finished, and he resurrected from the dead, there were dead people walking through the streets of Jerusalem. What's that crazy show today that some people like to watch? I can't even remember the name of it. I don't watch it. I don't believe they look demonic. I believe they look glorified. Because Jesus was transitioning them from paradise in the bowels of the earth and we find that through Lazarus and through the rich man and he was transferring them into the presence of the Lord. That's why I don't think when a person dies that they lay in the grave in a bunch of nothingness until the rapture of the church, till the trumpet of God sounds. Well, Jesus took these people into the presence of God and the Bible said to be absent from the body is to be Present with the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Wow. And so we see this. We see we have a responsibility to let the world know that we can come into fellowship with God. We can come into partnership with God. We can be the recipients of everything that Calvary paid for on the basis of koinonia or partnership with God. Now let's continue on. In our study here, we're going to talk about the bride, the bride making herself ready, the bride of Christ. But the bride makes herself ready. Once the reaping has been accomplished and the end of the age has come, the marriage supper of the Lamb is prepared for the bride, and He's made herself ready. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verses 4 through 9. Revelation 19, verses 4 through 9. Here's what it says. The four and twenty elders. Now listen, now listen very closely. Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the New Testament priesthood. 
Understanding that the Old Testament priests were patterns of things to come. Now we're talking about the New Testament believer, which is the New Testament priesthood. And, and here we're talking about the culmination of all of that. All right? Verse number 4, And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down, worshiped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent, that means all-powerful, reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, white and clean. Clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And He saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So we see that at the end of the age... Now I want you to understand, we're talking about the New Testament believer. When did the New Testament believer become the New Testament priest? They became the New Testament priest the moment that Jesus said, It is finished. Some people say, well, I thought that there were three days there. No, 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 no. There was already evidence of His resurrection. He was resurrected in the belly of the earth before He was ever resurrected out of the tomb that we know. Why? Why do we know that? Because He spoiled principalities and powers and the works of the enemy as He defeated the power of death. And the evidence of His resurrection was the sky darkening and thundering and lightning and the rocks rending and dead people walking around alive again. That was the evidence of His resurrection. So then He comes forth in resurrection and power on the third day and this opens up the dispensation of grace. The dispensation of grace is opened up because the dispensation of the law had been satisfied. So it had been shut. The door had been shut on the law. The law is still in existence. It's still, but the difference is now it is satisfied. You can go and you can You can slay as many animals as you want, turtle doves, oxen, lambs, anything that you want to, and it won't get you any cleaner than the blood of Jesus gets you the day that you give your life to Jesus. Because Jesus became the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. All of those were the substitute lambs. Jesus was the lamb. He was the lamb. When the veil in the temple was torn in twain from the top to the bottom, Jesus left the cross and went straight to the mercy seat. The Bible said He cried, it is finished, and the veil was rent in twain from top to bottom. That's what the Bible says at that moment. Pow, pow. The veil was written twain. Immediately from that point on, we had access. And this all happened during the week of Passover. The week when the lamb was supposed to be offered. What all happens that day. And so Jesus spoils principalities and powers and opens up the dispensation of grace. And from that time until the second coming of the Lord, we now live in the dispensation of grace where we are the fulfillment of the pattern of things that were to come. In the Old Testament, we are the living fulfillment of that pattern. We're New Testament kings and we're New Testament priests. We operate under the jurisdiction of heaven. When we pray, Thy kingdom come, God's systems and God's ways of doing things come. 
when we pray that we operate under the jurisdiction of heaven. We stand here in the state of God, in the place of God, Him working through us because He lives in us. The Bible says that He no longer dwells in temples made with hands, but He dwells in the hearts of men and women. You're the temple of God now. That was the Old Testament temple. You are the New Testament temple. You are the priest who carries around the sacrifice, the benefits of that sacrifice, who carries around the earthly throne room of God. The seat of God's presence is inside of you. The Bible said that He sets up His portals where they praise Him, where they halal Him, where they shout hallelujah to Him. What are the portals? The portals are the entering in to a courtyard. So He sets up His portals where they allow Him, where they praise Him. Your praise is your permission to God for Him to work in you and through you on behalf of others. Your worship is your intimacy with God which builds your spirit to the point where when you come in contact with a lost person or someone that needs ministry, you actually have the ability to allow God to flow through you. So praise is the permission and worship is the, is the opportunity to allow that to happen. It clears out the cobwebs. It's the door. Worship is the door for the anointing. Worship is the door for the glory. Worship is the door for the earthly manifestation of a heavenly God. Are you starting to see this? Are you starting to get it? That's why I said there's a worshiper in you. There's power in you. There's anointing in you. There's glory in you because God is in you. <laughs> Hallelujah. 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 So until the day that Jesus comes, then we're conduits of His glory, of His anointing, of His message, of His presence. You've heard me say it many different time, ways through the years. Hands to reach out and touch the need. Ears to hear the cry. Eyes to see. Feet to carry the message. Heart to feel compassion. You've heard me say it many different ways. You're the body of Christ. New Testament priest designed by God for work in His tabernacle. Here's tabernacle designed by God for work among God's people. So, in, so with all of this, now obviously the day of, uh, of grace, the dispensation of grace will end the day that Jesus comes. The bride during this time is making herself ready. We're making ourselves ready for the return of Jesus. We're connected to Him. We're the body of Christ. He's the head of the church. We're the, we're the body of Christ, which is the body of the church. Church, ecclesia, governing authority. We're God's earthly governing authority of heavenly things. That's the church. That's the work of the church. That's who we are. That's who we are. And so, one of these days, the Lord's going to come back. And when He does, the dispensation of grace will end and the redeemed of the Lord will say, So 
be it. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And so we'll say so be it. And that'll be the end. Now I've, I've shared with you before. And let me just for those that are watching. There is a difference in the relationship that you can have with God. And that uh, Abraham had with God. Or David had with God. Or majors and minor prophets all throughout the scriptures. Isaiah being a major prophet. Micah being a minor Different, different things. The, the, the difference, even though they were used by God, you're redeemed. You're the redeemed. You're the redeemed. And so, and so when you look here at Revelation chapter 19 and verse number uh, 4, the Bible said, The four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And the voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. And then verse number 6 says, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. This great multitude, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, that was crying, the Lord God impotent reigneth. That, those are are witnesses to the, the marriage of the Lamb. But who's he marrying? He's marrying those that gave their life to Christ during the dispensation of grace. He's marrying the redeemed. The church. The church. The ecclesia. That's who we are. So the relationship that all of these people... Listen, Abraham's going to be part of that great multitude. David's going to be part of that great multitude. Isaiah and Micah are going to be part of that great multitude. They're all going to be part of that great multitude. But when we switch over to the, the lamb that's going to be standing there making herself ready, which is what we are. We're making ourselves ready right now through worship and through praise and through the study of the Word and all of these things. We're making ourselves ready. So... Paul's going to be part of that group and Peter's going to be part of that group and New Testament saints are all going to be part of that group. So you got one group over here that's going to say we're witnesses to the marriage supper of the Lamb and then you got some that's going to say well we're the bride of Christ, we're the redeemed, we're the recipients of God's grace and so you're the witness but we're the participant. You get that? The difference in relationship, there's no other time that I would want to live. God blessed Abraham. Thank God God blessed Abraham. Thank God we can live in the blessing of Abraham. Thank God for all of those things. I'm grateful for that, but I'd rather be his bride. So when we look at ourselves on the basis of self-examination, when we look at ourselves... We realize that we're preparing ourselves to be the bride of Christ. We need to examine ourselves. We need to get ourselves ready. This is what the Word of God says, that the bride gets herself ready. Galatians chapter 5, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 says this, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. So God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at ourselves, we have to realize and understand that the cross is the only basis that we have to come to God. 
There are not many different ways to come to God. Some people say, well, you know what, the, those that are uh, serving uh, Buddha and those that are serving Hare Krishna and all of those, those that are serving them, the, that's God. They just call them that. That's not true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm one of the ways. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he followed that by saying, no one comes to the Father except through me, except by me. So in the basis of our self-examination, we have to ask ourselves, do I really believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Because if I don't, if I truly believe that all of these other ways they can get to God too, then let's pull all of the missionaries home, let's quit sponsoring world evangelism and all of that because they're going to go to God, they're going to go to heaven anyway, right? Well, we can't do that. You know why? Because Jesus is the only way to God. And the world needs to hear that. On the basis of self-examination, the next thing that we look at is that not only is Jesus the only way to God, but we also need to look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, where the Bible says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And so what we need to look at is we need to understand that the cross really did satisfy everything that Satan was totally unreservedly there's no chance for him ever to come back Satan was completely defeated at the cross completely completely hallelujah I don't know about you, but when I pray for people that, that God breaks chains off of people, most of the time I just say, God, don't just break it, destroy it, so it can never come back again. Jesus completely defeated Satan at the cross. That means your sickness has already, your healing from that sickness has already been paid for. That means that prosperity over poverty has already been paid for. All of that has been paid for. Jesus has already done for you everything that he can do for you. He can't die again. He can't shed another drop of blood. He can't take another uh, uh, stripe from, on his back from the whipping post. No, 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 no. He said, I've provided this. I provided it for you. Now by faith, come and get it. Not only did he provide it, but he was exalted and now he's become the great intercessor between God and man. And Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father and here's what the Word of God says. He is ever living to make intercession for you and I. What does that mean? That means that is the purpose of his life. That is what he is the most passionate about. That, that, that is his ministry gift. He is the go-between between us and God ever living to intercede for you uh, uh, before the Father on your behalf. You come to the Lord and you say, Father, that's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask for this, I entreat that. I take authority that you have given me and I speak against this and I speak against that. 
You, that's why we pray in the name of Jesus. That's why we speak in the name of Jesus. That's why we declare the name of Jesus because it identifies us. We are not Abraham. We are bride. We're bride. Acts 3, 19 through 21 tells us that every barrier to the cross is removed on God's side and on this side it takes repentance to remove the barrier to the cross. And you don't have to repent over and over and over and over and over and over. Once it's gone, it's gone. Amen. Glory be to God. Amen. The last thing that I want to mention to you is in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 1. Go back over there. Galatians chapter 3. I want you to put your eyes on it. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 1. Here's what it says. It says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth or crucified among you. So any activity that obscures the cross is witchcraft. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the cross? Manipulation, control, that's witchcraft. So the enemy will come to you and he'll try to get you to believe that there's many different ways to God. That's witchcraft at work. He'll try to tell you that there's more than one God. Well, the Greeks may have believed that, but polytheism is not accurate theology. There's one God. Only one. One true and living God. He has a son and his name is Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, who is our paraclete, the one that is called alongside to help. So anything that comes and tries to tell you that there's a different way to God, that's witchcraft. Oh foolish Galatians, people of Galatia, Paul writing to them, understand they didn't have uh, all of the Bible that you have. They didn't have all of this teaching and training. They were making their way, way through, through the words of the prophets and the apostles. Jesus told them, He said, I'm going to build my church upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. And the apostle Paul took that and wrote 13 different epistles that gave us the structure of God's church. Many of them were prison epistles. And when he was writing to the church of Galatia, they weren't reading the letters to Corinth, Corinthians. They weren't reading the letters to Thessalonica. Those were letters for Thessalonica. They weren't reading the letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. Those were personal letters that was written to Timothy. It wasn't until the canonization of Scripture in 300 and something A.D. or, or after Christ, after Christ rose, it wasn't until that time that they actually made their way into the canonization of Scripture. And I don't have time to talk about how that all happened. But I will tell you this. When Paul wrote to the church of Galatia and said, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? The reason he wrote that was because there were people who were trying to lead them astray doctrinally and theologically and he identified it as a spirit of witchcraft. And that spirit of witchcraft was a spirit that told them that they did not have to obey God's word. Which at that time was coming through God's apostles and prophets at that time. So 
there were people back then that were saying that Jesus had not been crucified or that Jesus did not die. Some said that wild dogs came and took him out of the tomb and, and uh, devoured his body and that the disciples were going around telling everybody that Jesus was risen when in fact they had stolen his body and put it somewhere else to try to start a religion. And so there were all of these kinds of things that were going on. And the reason these things were going on was because the church of that day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, actually paid people to start those lies. Because they realized that they had crucified the Son of God. And they tried to beat God. And over 2,000 years later, I'm standing here today still blowing their cover. He's alive. He's alive. Hallelujah. Jesus is alive. Come on, Charles. I'll keep going if you don't play and sing. Let's all stand. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks to those who helped to give to keep the gospel moving forward. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description or visit jvorse.org for more information. Please share, like, subscribe if you enjoyed our podcast. Take a screenshot and tag us at Lakewood Family Church. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.